You're listening to Little Victories, an audiobook read by me, Philip Alishev, uh, which was also written by me, Philip Alishev. If you'd like to read along to this story, there's a link to the blog post in which you can find the text in the description of this video. For as much as he had fought with himself over whether he should do it, the act was unimpressive. Nathan had seen other kids in his class not stand for the pledge. In lower grades, students didn't have enough awareness of choice to feel coerced. In third grade, a boy had decided to stay seated, but then got up quickly a moment later, as if he just hadn't noticed what was happening. Nathan remembered thinking he should have stuck it out. Then he chided himself for not taking his own advice. Now in fifth grade, he approached this little rebellion of his gradually. First, he didn't speak when the other students pledged allegiance. He expected some teacher to call, out, call him out. Weissman, why aren't you saying anything? But nothing of the sort happened. A few kids noticed what he was doing, which was what they were doing too. In a smaller class, four fewer voices would mean something. With 20 kids or more to a class, the other students didn't even have to talk louder for Nathan to be overlooked. Then he didn't move his lips. This was the easiest step. The hardest and last was not to stand, which did away with all the pretense that had protected him before. If he didn't pledge, he could say he had, but quietly. If he didn't move his lips, well, who would see it? This had no excuse. In the rush of finally doing what he felt was right, he decided he didn't need one. As it turned out, some teachers did care, particularly Nathan's, particularly in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Almost everyone of any importance talked about the war as if it were inevitable, a heroic clash of civilizations. It was a crusade of righteous anger in which neutrality was unjustifiable, even impossible. At dinner, Nathan and his family discussed the news. First came the what's, the facts as best as they could be determined. From them, the Weismans made the whys and hows which they debated. After just one such evening, they agreed that no weapons of mass destruction would be found because they didn't exist. They remembered what they heard, too. That sounds unremarkable until you try recalling news from half a year ago. Can you do it? They weren't perfect either. Still, when reporters said again and again in the span of a year that the military had killed the same suspects who, with their apparent powers of self-resurrection, had nothing better to do than play tricks, they noticed. Then there were the civilians. Once killed, they stayed dead, but went unreported except in the journals the Weissman family read. The confidence with which so many people told these lies made them feel that reality was slipping away from them. Their dinnertime talks assured them that others saw what they saw and agreed it was ludicrous. If these are surgical strikes, uh, if these are clinical strikes, his father said, they're bad surgeons. Nathan laughed. The joke wasn't funny, but it felt good to have someone who agreed with him. Nathan was a smart kid with a good head on his shoulders who worked hard when others gave up. So said Mr. and Mrs. Weisman with all the authority their titles gave them. 
All this was true, but not enough. Nobody, no matter how stuffed with virtue they were, could make as much of a difference as Nathan wanted. How could his essays, well written in his steady hand, or his quick wit compete against so many? It seemed one against all, and although that wasn't really the case, it made him think twice about staying seated and then rethink it. Officially, whether a student has to stand for the pledge, any pledge, had been settled by the Supreme Court in 1943. Marie and Gathy Barnett, both students at Slip Hill Grade School in Charleston, West Virginia, and both Jehovah's Witnesses, were expelled for insubordination. In this case, that meant not having saluted the flag or recited the pledge. Rights, however, exist only insofar as they're enforced. Without the money, and let's kindly call it tenacity, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower Society behind him, his teacher could be as petty a tyrant as he wanted to be, and Nathan had no way to make a court's ruling, supreme or not, mean anything. Sure, he could get a public defender, but they would be too overworked to help him. And then there were his parents. They would support him, though they didn't need the stress. He thought of all this only after his teacher had punished him with detention and an essay on the importance of the pledge. His capitulation was almost immediate. No apology was good enough. The only thing that would help was not to have done it in the first place. Nathan resented being punished for something so harmless, but because the protest had required so much time and mental preparation, he couldn't work up the courage to defend himself so quickly. Besides, it had been an act of conscience, not disobedience for the sake of it, or simple disregard. He could see the reason behind almost all rules except this one, which he hadn't known was a rule before today, when his record was spotless. He wasn't some kid too lazy to do what was good for him. He kept from crying, though if he had, his tears would have come from anger, not sadness. Sadness is passive. Tears are shed over something that has or is or will happen. Whatever you are grieving, you usually feel powerless to stop it. Sometimes you're right. Anger is active. Tears come, as does the feeling for some form of violence mental or physical, whatever you prefer, whatever you're capable of. He looked at the walls of the detention room, then at the clock, whose two hands seemed to stand still, except when he looked away, as if it was frightened. Then he drummed his fingers on his desk. The teacher at the front told him to knock it off. He did. Nathan tried to insult his teacher in every way, but he wasn't ugly. Before today, Nathan had considered his teacher's light blue eyes to be kindly, although he knew even then that this was fantasy. His teacher wasn't domineering, except in this one way, and he hadn't felt the need to yell at Nathan either. He noted what Nathan was doing, told him his punishment, and sent him to the principal. Thus, Nathan had the conviction that comes from betrayal, but very little to work with. He settled on calling him pathetic, and saying he should holster his flag through his throat and other openings. Naturally, he didn't say any of this. It took him until he got home to calm down and think properly. His principal had called his parents while he was in detention. While he told his parents what had happened a second time, they had overcome their in initial shock and gotten out all their swearing and outrage. So had he. Nathan spent all detention thinking of what he should 
have done or said to his teacher. By the time he was allowed to go, his imagination was spent. His father said he would go to the principal first thing tomorrow and tell him to leave his son alone. He couldn't shout down the teacher actually responsible for the whole mess because he'd be in class with his students. It wouldn't be right to stop their education for his son's sake. Nathan waited anxiously the whole school day to see what good, if any, that would do. As it turned out, not much, except to vent anger. But he hadn't done his son any major harm, either. Nathan still had to do his essay, but his teacher would receive some sort of punishment. He didn't begrudge his father this failure. No, Nathan was proud to know he didn't hesitate. He imagined his father yelling at his principal and what he had said. He had to, because Mr. Weissman, as he thought his principal had shouted, like it was his father and not he who should be embarrassed to be acting like this, wasn't saying much besides what I told you. Then there was his essay. Ten pages, handwritten, thankfully not double-sided, due in two weeks. It wasn't just about expressing his opinion. If it were, he wouldn't have been punished at all. His teacher wanted him to think about what he had done, as if he hadn't thought about it before doing it. What his teacher expected was an essay that showed he had reflected and recognized his mistake. Then would be the time to ask for forgiveness, which he would have, have already done with his essay. That was a tidy plan, but one Nathan wouldn't go along with. The full question he had to answer was, why is the Pledge of Allegiance important? Now sitting at his desk, he began to plan what he would write. His structure looked like this. First, the introduction, where he would summarize his arguments. Before he summarized them, he had to think of them. Then the main body. The first section would explain how the pledge evolved into its current form, from the outstretched arm Bellamy salute to the hand over heart gesture. He would then connect this to how the pledge worked to promote conformity. He wrote Barnett 1943 court case and some other notes. In the second section, he would take issue with the words of the pledge itself, what it demanded and what those that took the pledge were saying. Here, his notes were a command to look up the lyrics. Here is where, where he would turn the question around. The pledge was important, not to him, but to people like his teacher. In the third section, he would explain why patriotism couldn't and shouldn't be compelled. Last, the conclusion, where he would summarize his arguments again. He knew it was redundant to write that down, but it did him good to think about something besides the incident, even something as closely related to it as his punishment. After that, his bibliography. He didn't count it towards his ten pages, because he rightly assumed his teacher wouldn't either. At least they agreed on that. In the coming days, Nathan stood for the flag and recited the pledge, not wanting to make his punishment worse. But still, there were, there were kids, really just boys, who took issue with the one time he had refused to stand. Nathan didn't think much of it. They wanted someone to pick on. If a reason could be found, even better. Better still if that reason was supposedly noble. He spoke to his father about this, who again spoke to his principal, who gave detention to the few boys that admitted to it. They did so out of pride, not guilt. Nathan asked himself whether that would be all, meaning their punishment and their harassment of him. 
yes and no in that order. He spent most of his time after school thinking about his essay, either alone at his desk or with his parents at the dinner table, as if the better his essay was, the less likely further punishment would be. When arguing for a side you don't agree with, as his parents did to help Nathan, you make your points with more passion for the discussion than for the topic itself. They had lived through Cold War patriotism and learned a new pledge that included God. His parents repeated the arguments that others had given them, though without much conviction. Neither had found them convincing back then, when they were about Nathan's age and the fears that the, the arguments relied on were closer to reality than they were now. Without all that, what could they say? It's tradition meant to Nathan, nobody else complained, why should you? It brings us together as a nation, to him implied, against you. He put these arguments in his essay, along with his counters. This routine went on until he was done. With a weak despair, he gave himself a day of rest. He slept and went on a walk to relieve the pressure that his workload had built up inside him. His destination was a little bay ten blocks away from their home, where the sun and the sky met at sunset. He didn't see any of the things that had occupied his mind. No flags, no rallies, no news. No people at all, except himself. Just the bay and its small curb, which he walked and then stood on as he watched the sunset. The next day, he looked over his essay. It seemed no, nothing more could be added or taken away. He gave the essay to his father, who said it was good, but he feared it would only make things worse. Nathan said he had felt the same way while writing it. Now that he was finished, he didn't care. He had gotten used to his own opinion. Others would have to do the same. I hope they do, his father said, handing the essay back to Nathan, who put it on a folder which he put on his teacher's desk the next day. Once he had done that, all the fears he had dismissed before threatened to come true. He couldn't take his essay back or think it over. His teacher could refuse to accept it and punish him further. He could, but even he had other interests. Nathan waited anxiously for his reaction. His teacher told him the essay was satisfactory. Was this a sign he didn't have to stand for the pledge anymore? For the time being, Nathan played it safe. He promised himself he would stop when it was safe to do so. But when would that be? Weeks passed. The strain of his cowardice mounted until he couldn't take it anymore. He stayed seated to prove to himself and to his teacher that he wasn't scared. He got detention again, but no essay this time. His father complained. His teacher received another punishment, another unspecified punishment. This happened week after week until Nathan went to the principal's office without having to be asked. Mr. Weissman lodged complaints just as regularly. Since the teacher in question taught history, Nathan and his father figured he wasn't missing anything he didn't already know. When Nathan was allowed to read books during detention, they agreed it was better than staying in class. Nathan laughed, really laughed at how these punishments didn't work. There were people like him all over the country, each with their own little victories and rebellions, and people like his teacher, pouring French wine out wherever they could, onto the street if they had to, 
and generally making everything more patriotic. Years later, almost everyone pretended they had nothing to do with the war. Either they didn't mention their support or remembered privately feeling the whole thing was wrong. It was easier for people to lie if there wasn't a public record of their opinions, but even reporters and journalists denied what they had done. Again, Nathan felt reality slipping away from him. With nobody to hold accountable, he was altogether powerless until a reporter famous for his Iraq war stories visited his high school. Apparently, this was a grand enough occasion to herd his whole class and a few others into his school's auditorium. The students sat there, their teachers in the back rows, able to see everyone and everything, and stared at the man as he went through the highlights of his career. He had helped children get to safety, once while covering a hurricane, twice while covering fires. When others had fled war zones, he stood in range of the enemy. Next to soldiers, he said, two students called him a moron, but quietly, so that their teachers shushed them rather than punishing them for the insult. The reporter didn't seem to hear them. He didn't have any footage of this. He didn't even ask his audience to believe him, taking it for granted that they would. Knowing that he had lied once, Nathan suspended judgment. It didn't matter anyway whether he had helped some children years ago. Most other students were neutral too, but because they didn't care. Nathan only really paid attention when the questions began. He raised his hand but had to wait. Some other boy was quicker. He asked whether reporters were allowed to get involved in the stories they covered. Wasn't there something during the Vietnam War about that? Yes, there was. Reporters took photos of napalm victims rather than help them. I've never stuck to that rule. The reporter looked around the crowd. Nathan was next. You said the Iraq war would take six months at most. That's from your article, America's Duty, from July 6, 2003. Nathan took the article in question out of his jacket pocket, reading the date and title with his headband to show he had printed it out. Then he held the paper up so the others could see. How do you evaluate these statements in the context of how the war played out? The reporter told him not to bring up the past or to pick fights. Then he answered someone else's question. That was all the response Nathan got. No complaints from his teachers or classmates, not even a panicked look from their guest. It was as if he had violated some agreed-upon rule rather than tried to hold the man to his words. Nathan told his parents what he had done. They said they were proud of him, though all three knew he hadn't done much. Only Nathan had expected more of himself. He dealt with his disappointment by waiting. Whether he read, watched TV, went on walks, or did something else, he was really waiting for the feeling to leave him, which it eventually did. The feeling for all such politics, meaning the diligent separation of the truth from lies, later left him too. It was a gradual process, punctuated every few years by an incident of outsized importance, like his utter failure to uphold even a reporter responsible for the promotion of the Iraq War. He wrote letters to senators that received no answer. The petitions he began or joined had no effect, 
other than cramping his writing hand. Editors printed his letters less and less frequently. He dropped his usual papers in revenge. After this, he didn't have much to write to editors about. This change made Nathan reserved, although not uncaring. The desire to right the world, to bring about some form of justice, was still within him, but it rarely found expression in his words or deeds. His expectations of himself, by which I mean how he estimated his effect on the world, became more realistic. He reflected on the letters and petitions he had written, and also on the hopes he had attached to them. When someone asked him to sign a form or to give money nowadays, Nathan usually snapped at them. Afterwards, he apologized profusely, but never bothered to explain why he reacted that way. It wasn't worth the time for either of them. To care about the world requires a constant effort, which has to be rewarded in some way if it isn't to be defeated. The volunteers who approached him were no closer to victory than he was, but they were further from defeat. That was Little Victories, uh, written by Philip Balashev and read by, by Philip Balashev too. As always, uh, remember to like, share, and subscribe, and if you want to read other stories or read the text of this audiobook, there's a link to that in the description.